Thanks for joining us. I'm Diane Rehm. President Obama says the U.S. will take action in response to Russian hacking and attempts to interfere with U.S. elections. The evacuation of eastern Aleppo is suspended after violence resumes, and Beijing expresses serious concern over President-elect Trump's questioning of America's long-standing one-China policy. Here for this week's top international stories on the Friday News Roundup, Yoki Driesen of Box News, Elise Lavitt of CNN, and Shane Harris of The Wall Street Journal. You are, of course, as always, welcome to join us. Give us a call at 800-433-8850. Send an email to drshow at wamu.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And welcome to all of you. Good morning, Dan. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Shane, tell us about these mixed reports we're getting out of Syria as the refugees try to leave. Right. It seems like it's sort of on again, off again in terms of the evacuation. And there have been reports of uh, people firing on these convoys of people who were trying to leave and to get out of Aleppo, which has been besieged, the eastern part of Aleppo uh, specifically, which has been the site of just so much bombing and, and carnage in recent days. Um, both sides, sort of the rebels and the government, are blaming each other for that. Humanitarian aid workers have been told to pull out. It's not exactly clear why. That is the case. They're expressing uh, a bit of uh, um, perplexed, uh, perplexed by that. Uh, but it's a pretty dire situation right now. And uh, what needs to happen, obviously, from the U.S. perspective is to get these people out to continue with this evacuation. Uh, so hopefully we'll hear more on that uh, very soon. Do we know how many people have been evacuated, Lise? Um, well, it's about 1,000 so far, we think. But again, the numbers are fluctuating wildly. About 250,000 people are stuck inside. And then about 50,000 have already fled. So they're, they're displaced, most of them inside Syria still. Sometimes, some of them have fled um, to neighboring countries like Jordan and, and Lebanon and Turkey. Um, but the reason I think that this is going so slow and it's so tenuous is because we've talked on the show in recent weeks about how the fear was, was that as these refugees left, as some of the opposition and the rebels left, that the Russians would engage in a kind of scorched earth policy like they did in Grozny, in the war in Chechnya, when they said it was safe for people to leave. They opened up the safe kind of humanitarian corridors and then they killed them as they were leaving. And so people are really, there's so many wounded. The, the humanitarian situation is so dire, Diane. But these people are afraid to leave because as much of it is in hell inside Aleppo, they're afraid what lies beneath the borders. Yeah, okay. I think that uh, two things were worth mentioning. I, I agree with Elise's last point. One for all the language that Western leaders, including Samantha Power, use about condemning this, I mean, the language itself is, how can you do this, you barbarians, don't you have any shame left? The world has done nothing. And the reason why Aleppo is falling is because Assad and the Russians first besieged it, even though that's illegal under the laws of war, and then indiscriminately bombed it, including systematically destroying the hospitals, killing doctors. The last OBGYN died, even though there are obviously pregnant women still in the city. And they wiped out the medical infrastructure. They barred food. They barred water. They barred sewage. So you've seen something on a scale that will look when Stalin, it will look like Stalingrad once you have people finally get into the city. And whatever the death toll is that we think is in the city, 
it will end up being exponentially higher. That's true of every conflict once people can get in and count. Another very scary part about the evacuation is even in a best-case scenario where many civilians make it out and are not shot on the way out, and best-case scenarios with Syria are all depressing, they'll be sent to the city of Idlib, of Idlib, excuse me, I-D-L-I-B. The reason they're being sent there is that that city and that region is ringed by mountains. They will be in one place. They will literally be in a single location where, the Rus- where Russian aircraft can bomb them endlessly because there's nothing, once they're there, for there's no way for them to leave. So it's a hell in the city. The routes out are hellish, and where they're going may soon be hellish. Why is the Syrian government providing these buses? Is it all for show? It, it sure seems that way, looking, frankly, from the outside that it is. And Yoki's absolutely right in, in the fact that the, the, the international community has sort of stood by and condemned uh, this Russian bombing, uh, indiscriminate attacking of civilians. Uh, I mean, at this point, it's no wonder why so many people are, in fact, afraid to leave. How can they trust that they're going to someplace that is any better? Uh, and we should also say, too, that these, these rebel groups are not necessarily going to stand down here. I mean, there's a, there's a high expectation that there could be guerrilla conflict that's going on, the Syrian government believes that the that the rebels will relocate to Idlib and try and make maybe even make another stand there. Um, so we have not seen the end of this, which is almost unfathomable to think of you know, how awful this situation has been to imagine that this is not the end. It's just it's so incredibly profoundly sad. And I mean, as we talk about that, this is not the end and they're moving to Idlib. First of all, Assad was very clear. This is just the beginning. He's comparing this in historical um, you know, proportions to what's happened right now and saying this is, you know, just the first way that we're going to kind of liberate the whole country from terrorists. And as these people are moving to Idlib, which is, you know, going to be obviously one of the next, um, you know, battles, the the Syrian civilians are, are kind of pawns in this shifting regional dynamics, right, where support for the opposition is waning. Certainly, Donald Trump has said that he, as president, would, uh, you know, make some kind of deal with the Russians. And that includes, you know, leave. it does include leaving Assad in power, if you look at, you know, what they're talking about, um, and ending support for the opposition. And then you have Turkey, um, who, you know, now that they have that rapprochement with, with Russia, is also kind of, you know, in their concerns about the Kurds, their support for the hardcore rebel opposition that has been fighting Assad is also waning. And I think that the international community, in some ways, while they do want to end the bloodshed and the suffering of these people, they're also coming along to the recognition that Syria is winning, Assad is winning, and if there is going to be a way to end this war, um, it's going to have to be a surrender of the opposition. I think it's also the case that Vladimir Putin has won. I mean, Bashar al-Assad is going to stay in power. When the Obama legacy is written, there's no question this will be the biggest black mark on it. I mean, the number of dead in Syria, whether it's 500,000, a million, a million and a half, it's so beyond comprehension. And when the Russians start to bomb, it's important to remember what the U.S. said. First, they said it won't do anything. Then they said it'll be a quagmire and Russia will be stuck there. Then they said they'll start to lose people and money for no reason. That was false on every front. They accomplished their goals with almost no deaths. Bashar al-Assad will stay in power. The obvious counterpoint is, well, that's because the Russians indiscriminately barrel bomb civilians, and the U.S. would never do that. The Russians won. Let's close this part of our discussion by hearing Samantha Power. As uh, she spoke, I guess we have that ready, or perhaps not. All right. We'll hear that a little later. You really believe Russia has won in this whole issue? 
I do. Not just because they have shown that they will go to literally to war to keep their allies in power, but because they've shown that the U.S. won't. For all the talk that Russia policy under Donald Trump will be softer, that the U.S. will move away from trying to confront him, that they'll be much friendlier to Vladimir Putin, it's also worth remembering that for all that Obama did, sanctions-wise, for all Obama did rhetorically, when it came to Syria, he did not stand up to him. All right, let's hear Samantha Power. Are you truly incapable of shame? Is there literally nothing that can shame you? Is there no act of barbarism against civilians, no execution of a child that gets under your skin, that just creeps you out a little bit? Is there nothing you will not lie about or justify? Syrians or Russians, or Russians both. And also are the Iranians who have been helping, um, you know, Bashar al-Assad wage this battle. And, it, you know, Samantha Power has really been the kind of voice of humanity in the Security Council. But, you know, going back to what Yoki is saying, you know, it's it, you have to have more than just rhetoric. You have to have action behind your words. And, yes, Russia and Syria and Iran have shown you know, an unprecedented level of barbarism in this conflict, but the inaction of the United States, um, particularly, but also, you know, the largely what the rest could of the international. The United States have done. Well, there are critics of the Obama administration policy will say they could have armed the Syrian rebels sooner. They could have stood up uh, and enforced the so-called red line that Obama promised that he would not allow the Syrians to cross when they used chemical weapons on a civilian population. Um, these are all maybe could have, should have, would have. And Yoki's right that when the history is written and there, I think there will be a black mark on the administration, those questions, those decisions will come under tremendous scrutiny. They already are. Uh, it's worth noting, too, that after Samantha Power's remarks, the Russian ambassador to the United Nations sort of gave it back to her and said, where were you when these things were happening? Where were you standing up to these atrocities, which was pretty rich? Uh, but it, it's, it's something that a lot of critics of the Obama administration will say is it's fine to sit there and lecture the inhumanity of the Russians, but at the same time, where were we? Why didn't we do more? Just something very short. Um, if you listen to President-elect Trump last night, he talked in something he said on the campaign trail about safe zones, that he's going to create this suffering is unbelievable, and he's going to create safe zones in Iraq. Now, what does safe zones mean? This is something that you know, President Obama has been under pressure to do for you know several years. A safe zone, in effect, is a no-fly zone, where you have Syrian civilians going into an area, and there's an agreement that there's not going to be any bombing of that area. Who would need to agree to that? The Syrians and the Russians who are bombing them. And... If they don't, if they go over, are you going to shoot a Russian plane down? I don't think President Trump is going to do that. Elise Lappet of CNN. Short break here. Your comments, your questions when we come back. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily. It's news, culture, and curiosities. From the district, Tacoma Park, Alexandria, Friendship Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church, Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox every weekday afternoon. DCS Daily. Sign up at dcs.com newsletter. 
dcs.com slash newsletter. And welcome back. A number of our listeners are asking us about uh, Donald Trump's appointment of the new ambassador to Israel. Yoki, tell us who he is and why there is such controversy about him. So first, like so many of Donald Trump's picks, he's somebody who has absolutely no experience whatsoever in government. He's a bankruptcy lawyer who has never served in government, certainly never served in the State Department, and certainly never done anything quite as delicate as being ambassador to a place as explosive as Israel. He is somebody who praises settlements. He is somebody who says that the idea of a two-state solution, which has been U.S. policy, Republican and Democrat for decades, should be thrown out the window. He's accused the State Department, so the place he will work, of being institutionally anti-Semitic. And I think most strikingly, and I, and I say this now on a personal level as well as a professional one, most repugnant to me hearing it is to compare those who favor a two-state solution, more specifically J Street, which is a left-of-center pro-Israel advocacy group, to Kapos. And to say that other Jews are equivalent or worse than Jews who helped Nazis commit the Holocaust is so beyond the pale that it, to my mind, dwarfs anything else that he has said or, or might do in office. It is worth noting that if Rex Tillerson is confirmed as Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, having run ExxonMobil, spent more time in the Arab world than probably any U.S. leader in decades. So it's not clear to me that if you have this insanely hawkish pro-Israel ambassador working for a Secretary of State who himself is very likely empathetic to Arab leaders, having worked with them for so long, that dynamic will be fascinating to watch. Who would have recommended him as ambassador there's a, lot, there's a lot of presumption that Jared Kushner or the Kushner family who have themselves donated to groups which donate to things in the West Bank. And that's his son-in-law. His son-in-law who's going to have a Sheldon White House And also Sheldon Addison, who's one of Netanyahu's biggest bankers. He's basically bankrolling this Israeli newspaper that a lot of people see as kind of a propaganda arm for Benjamin Netanyahu. When I was in Israel, that, that was just coming up. Um, and also, uh, he was one of Tr- um, Trump's... Israel advisors during the campaign. So there was wide expectation that, you know, even that he would be a kind of peace envoy or or ambassador to Israel, we understand um, that uh, maybe Kushner, Jared Kushner, would take some kind of role. You know, Donald Trump is also saying that he would like to, you know, take a stab at negotiating Mideast peace. He sees this as a, you know, deal, um, you know, a little bit less complex than some of the Syria conflicts, which are more sectarian. He thinks that this might be something he could um, sink his teeth into. Jared Kushner is expected to take a role in that. But the question is, with an appointment of someone like David Friedman, who would be interested in in helping Israel continue the settlements to, um, you know, take a much more sympathetic line towards Israel, is the idea of a two-state solution dead? Is the idea of Mideast peace dead. And if you look at what's going on in the region, Israel has better relations with Saudi Arabia, with some of the other Gulf states because of the threat posed by Iran. It's really not the number one issue that you hear from Arab leaders anymore. Of course, the danger is that, you know, with a situation like Friedman there, you know, not being there to check what Israel is doing on settlements or you know, things like that, um, that there could be an eruption in the in the Palestinian territories, which could cause the issue to come back on the front burner. Friedman has also talked about, you know, in his statement last night, he said, I look forward to serving um, the American interests in Israel from the embassy in the eternal capital 
of Jerusalem. Right, which was, which was just such a, an extraordinary thing to say and send sort of all of the signals that he wants to send in one sentence. Of course, the United States has its embassy in Tel Aviv and, and does not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. It's a dispute. But with uh, President Donald Trump in there. The, he might just decide that that's the new policy, and he says so. I mean, the, the, the Friedman uh, appointment, I think, also signals it's, it's, it's part of a pattern of Donald Trump picking people who do not have, as Yoki said, foreign and policy and government expertise, I read that as saying that he does not affirmatively value that experience and expertise. I think he might look at Friedman as somebody who can go in there, do things differently, because he looks at the history of Middle East peace efforts, let's say, and says, well, no one's been able to do it before, so let's try something radically different. We're going to engage in a very big experiment in governance in the next four years, and in this kind of philosophy of how Trump is picking people is, is going to be tested. I want to ask you all uh, about the issue of alleged Russian hacking into the not only the DNC but with the entire election process. There are many people who are saying liberals just need to get over it. Hillary lost, and that's all there is to it. And yet there are these ongoing questions. How much evidence is there and what is the evidence that Russia may have played a role in defeating Hillary Clinton? Right. So the evidence that we've seen, and I think it's compelling and persuasive, let's put it in sort of two categories. There is what the government has come out and said in a extraordinary, rare joint statement of all the intelligence agencies <clears throat> in October, where they came out and said, we believe this was directed by the highest levels of the Russian government. <clears throat> More so, we believe that it was done to interfere their word with the U.S. election process. It is highly unusual, even in private, for intelligence agencies to try and say it was done by this person for this reason. Imputing motive to someone is something intelligence agencies are reluctant to do. So they believe the evidence is strong. Secondly, we've seen independent computer experts come out, examine the intrusions on the networks at these places, look at the malware that was used, and essentially kind of do a, you know, a CSI, if you like, a digital forensic study, and said these are the same techniques, the same kinds of malware, the same kinds of patterns, the same tradecraft that we've seen from Russian actor groups that have been positively linked to other break-ins at the State Department, at the White House, at the Defense Department, going back many, many years. So the evidence, I think, is from the, from the point of view of the intelligence community and security experts pretty overwhelming. It's a hard case to make, however, to skeptics of that when you can't show it to them, when you can't put it up on a website and say, go look at it for yourself, just take my word for it. And that's where Donald Trump has come out and said, how can we trust this? These are the same people who screwed up on weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Uh, he's obviously going right to that skepticism that is at the heart of, of, of people's concerns about whether this is real, accurate information. Okay. And there's the hacking, the Russian, you know, what, what they see is they don't have, you know, Vladimir. Putin's fingerprints on it, but they do have these are sophisticated hacking tools that only the top levels of the government are using. And so they believe that that's why they're assigning, you know, his involvement. Um, I think what Donald Trump is is, you know, out of sorts about is that this all plays into the idea that he didn't win the election fair and square. Clearly, the Democrats are claiming that. But the intelligence community has never claimed that. He did not win the election. You know, if you heard election officials during the whole campaign, they said, no, 
Donald Trump, uh, Russia would never be able to influence the election. So, you know, I think it's an unknowable whether any of this um, affected Hillary Clinton's chances. You heard John Podesta the other day blaming the FBI. At the end of the day, Hillary Clinton's email, her decision to use the email server um, is different than Russian hacking and all of that. And I think that's all being conflated. I think if this was not about the idea of Donald Trump's legitimacy, he might be more amenable to looking at what Russia did or didn't do as an issue in terms of a U.S. cyber policy. But because it's so conflated with the election, I think that's why he has a little bit of blinders on in terms of whether the intelligence is good or bad. And it's picking a fight with the intelligence community that's going to need to advise him on some of these monumental national security issues. So I have to disagree uh, fairly strongly with with my friend Elise on on much of that. Um, I think that comparing this to Hillary's server, it's just comical, the difference in in importance one has the other. Hillary's email server was a terrible error in judgment. It showed that her defensiveness or personality flaws, this by many measures is an act of war. This is something unprecedented in the history of the United States. And so when we talk about conflating the two... I just said that's not why she... That that the Democrats were saying that Russian hacking is the reason that she didn't win. Right. But to me, the bigger issue is that actually Democrats are not saying that. There's been pressure, including from left-wing columnist Michael Tomaski, who was very persuasive, that what you need is Democrats to say that. That Hillary Clinton, because she's trying to be graceful, that Barack Obama, because he doesn't want to appear partisan, did not say this before the election. So you don't have prominent Democrats. You don't have Hillary. You don't have John Podesta. You don't have Barack Obama. You don't have Joe Biden. The leaders of the party have not said this influenced it. They have not said this questions his legitimacy. They've gone way to the other extreme. And there's also the substantive difference. The FBI intervened in an unprecedented way before the election. This was known by the president in October. The president did not say a word about Russian influence that could have implanted the election because he didn't want to appear like he was shaping the outcome. So if anything, what Democrats will likely say going forward is we should have said more, we Democrats. The White House should have said more. And by not saying it, they enabled this hack to have much more impact than it otherwise might have had. I, I agree with Elise in that it's it's unknowable whether this actually had an outcome on the election. The important thing now, though, for policymakers, and Donald Trump is going to have this question land squarely in his lap, is what do you do for the next election? Because the Russians will do this again. This is not the first time they've done this. They have done this in European elections. Uh, they have been behind fake websites across Europe. The EU did a big study on this last year. Uh, the, the Obama administration has done a classified assessment of Russian influence in foreign elections. You've seen already in the past couple of weeks the Germans and the British coming out and warning, their security services warning, it's happening here too. It's not been getting a lot of attention, but there is sort of a German version of the DNC WikiLeaks scandal going on right now. This is the Russian playbook. What about congressional elections? There were questions raised there. You had Democratic candidates' uh, information leaked there too in individual races in the House, races that were competitive, where some of the Democrats were sort of stunned that they would have had, you know, that their stuff would have been seen as so important to Russia that it would have been leaked as well. Some of the stuff that was leaked, interestingly, was internal Democratic files about Democrats. So typically when a Democrat's running for office, or a Republican for that matter, their own party will do an assessment of their possible vulnerabilities. That's what was leaked. So often this wasn't that they hacked the Republicans or, or even the candidate themselves. They hacked the Democratic Party files on their own candidates which identified that person's weaknesses, then leaked them out. In a couple of cases, the Democratic candidates basically pleaded with their Republican opponents not to make use of it and basically said, you know, appeal to their patriotism. That didn't work. 
In, in one case, it did, but the Democrats still lost. There's some, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. There's something just to say really fascinating about this and the nuance with which these things were leaked. The Russian government has not traditionally been understood, or at least not Vladimir Putin, to have a very specific kind of deep understanding of how our politics work. It's actually sort of leading investigators in this privately to question whether there was somebody helping interpret the way our system works and saying, these are the people you need to leak on. These are the people that you need to go target. We focus on the DNC and the Clinton campaign. There were state-level operatives that were, were targeted in this. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee was targeted. It was a very sophisticated operation. Either someone was helping the Russians or they have gone to school really quickly on how our politics work. Shane Harris at the Wall Street Journal. He is the author of At War, The Rise of the Military Internet Complex. And you're listening to The Diane Rehm Show. And here's a tweet which says... For all the criticism of Obama's Syria policy, I haven't heard anyone give effective action that would not have resulted in war with Russia. Well, the the thing is, last year, last September, when the Russians went in, it was over. The question is, what could President Obama have done up until that point? And that would have been building up the Syrian opposition, which was difficult because, you know, they didn't have their act together either. And they weren't united. They were very divided. That could have been aiding the opposition with more arms, training them better, some kind of no-fly zone at the time. And as Yoki was saying earlier, you know, this kept snowballing. The the longer the inaction continued, um, the more that gave Russia leverage on the ground. And by the time that it was so dire and the Russian bombing campaign um, intensified, there was nothing that the U.S. could do because that most certainly would have been going to war with Russia. But there are very several points along the last five years where action by President Obama, a smaller action, would have um, precluded him having to get involved in an air war with Russia right now. All right. Let's open the phones here to Hamed in Arlington, Virginia. You're on the air. Good morning, Dan. Hi. Um, Thank you for educating us for the last 20 years that you've been on this radio. I've been learning a lot of stuff and mannerism and how you approach all the questions. Thank you for everything you do for us. I grew up with your radio station, so I want to say that first out of the way. Thank you. Uh, I just want to say, I think one of the guests said it clearly. As the President of the United States, when you say something, Dan, it means what you say it has to deliver. When the President Obama says that, there is a red line, and he did not deliver that red line. Russia knew that they can play games with the Barack Obama. I'm not going to only blame Barack Obama. I'm also blame John Kerry. He's been traveling one place to another place with the Russian, making a deal that they cannot deliver. They buy their time. They make sure that they're going to uh, uh, do what they need to do. And most of all, one of the guests say clearly, Russia did win. Syria, President Bashar al-Assad, he's feeling the victory today. And I am so angry with right now with the President Obama saying right now, we're going to do something about they attack us about our election. Mr. President knew everything. What can he do right now to solve the problem, Mr. Ray? Well, he's not going to be able to solve the problem in Syria. I mean, this is definitely going to go on to the next uh, administration. There are a lot of questions about 
how he's going to go about it, whether he's going to make a deal with the Russians, how that's going to um, portend for the Syrian people. But he can do something before he leaves office on uh, what he sees, not necessarily the hacking per se or the spying or anything, you know, the, the espionage, because that's something that the U.S. does against Russia. But this whole idea that Russia tried to interfere in the U.S. democracy for whatever motives that it was, tried to interfere with U.S. electoral systems um, and and uh, messing with the U.S. democracy. And so there are a lot of options being considered. Some of them will be cyber and covert that we may not see. Some of them could be sanctions um, that he imposes as he walks out the door. Donald Trump has has talked about release uh, overturning some of those sanctions when he comes into office. But there is a lot of Republican resistance to what Russia is doing right now. So um, President Trump would have problems with his own party if he continues to deny uh, Russian actions in this uh, election tampering. Uh, Mike McFall, who was the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, had a very smart observation <clears throat> on Twitter the other night, uh, which was that the most powerful weapon that the president has right now is transparency. In the 30-some days that he has left, he could make the decision to declassify and disclose information about those hacks and put that out there. That's probably the best chance he has. And he is holding a press conference this afternoon. We will be very interested to hear what President Obama has to say. Right now, a short break. Your calls, comments, when we come back, stay with us. And welcome back. We are talking about uh, many things in this hour, but let's open the phones and go to Henry in Birmingham, Alabama. You're on the air. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Go right ahead, Thank you for, ta- thank you for taking my call. Sure. Several observations, several observations about Trump and a lot of the things you're saying. Um, I find Trump's kind of a... He, he started out as a populist. He didn't run as a Democrat, didn't run as a Republican. He ran as a populist, almost like Jackson would have. But he's a merchant prince. And so what his method is is more like a, a – he's been called a gamer or a dealmaker. So his narrative is designed to unsettle people, to strike the best deal. It's a lot like a narrative Sun Tzu attack using the precepts of Sun Tzu, Sun Tzu. But I'm afraid that what we've done is that we've lost the first cyber war because the techniques that they are using in our system, they first used in Syria to eliminate the opposition and track them down. Of all the Arab countries in the Arab Spring that that failed in the revolution, Syria, through its cyber attacks or cyber-tracking dissidents, track them down. 
think not. Yeah, I think that well, there's there's a different issue there. That is certainly the case that the Syrian government did monitor dissidents through the internet and used to track them down. There's no indication that the Russians did that. But what the Russians did very effectively, this is generally called an information campaign or a disinformation campaign. They they muddied the waters. They sowed dissent. Uh, they put out. Uh, they made made it so email after email came out from Hillary Clinton, and every day there was a story about something about the Clinton Foundation or something about Hillary Clinton's corruption, rather than a focus on the fact that the Russians tried to hack and subvert our election system. Uh, that is very, very effective. They are excellent at this. They've been doing it for decades. This is sort of Cold War-style tactics. They now brought it into the, the, the U.S. election in an unprecedented way. And in that sense, in this, if you want to call it losing a cyber war, to the extent that you know we you know were attacked by them in this way and they achieved their objective, yeah, we lost round one here. Here's an email from John. Why should we be looking at the Russian hacks of the DNC any differently than if they physically sent spies and broke into the DNC and stole documents and then leaked them? Seems to me the reaction would be much more serious if this were a physical act of espionage, but in effect. It's no different. I agree completely. There's a photo in the New York Times this week of the file cabinet that was broken into during the Watergate break-in next to the server that was broken into by the Russians, which really drove it home. If anything, what the Russians were able to do, because it was not a physical break-in, was spread this much more easily than they could have if it was. And it's something that, you know, to Shane's point about disinformation, Vladimir Putin weaponized the American press. There will have to be, by the U.S. media, a lot of self-reflection come January. And part of it is everything, once it was leaked, was public was public, and was made public by the New York Times and by Vox and by the Wall Street Journal and by CNN. It led coverage all the time, day after day after day after day after day. And the argument was by everyone, by us, by our bosses, was it's newsworthy inherently. But at some point, there should have been a question of, are you helping someone, some hostile group, harm an American political candidate in the heat of the election? And whatever the intent, whatever judgment calls were made, that happened. I'm going to disagree. <laughs> I think that obviously the Russians were involved in the hacking. They were involved in the DNC. Right before the Democrats' convention, there was that whole thing about leaked emails with Donna Brazil and her, you know, trying to – and um, about the uh, debate question. There was the whole idea of how the DNC was trying to conspire against Bernie Sanders. And that was clearly controversial. And there was no, I mean, even though, as we were saying, there's no fingerprints of Vladimir Putin um, on these hacks that show that he deliberately did it to discredit Hillary Clinton, he very well might have, because there's no love lost between uh, between, uh, Vladimir Putin and Hillary Clinton. I just, as I was saying before, and maybe I should clarify, I think that's being conflated with the, like, year and a half of emails of Hillary Clinton that were released day by day by day. And Yoki's right. The press was very involved in uh, dissecting all of those emails. I think it's just it was kind of a snowball effect that first started with the server and all of those emails. There were, like, I don't know, 55,000, and I know because I was personally reading all of them. Those were not hacked by Russia and released. The government released released those. The government, the State Department released those. And so by the time that the Russians were involved and some of those emails were kind of released and hacked, I just think it was a snowball effect. This is all being conflated. And the whole idea of 
Russia interfering in the U.S. democracy, in the U.S. election system, and how the next president, Donald Trump, is going to deal with that, I think is the question at hand. I don't necessarily know if if he was able to influence the election. Is we really- have a question from Chip about ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and his connections to Russia, Shane. So this this is, there's a, this is a very well documented in a big New York Times piece over the summer that Paul Manafort uh, did business with Viktor Yanukovych, who was the former <clears throat> uh, president in Ukraine and who was ousted in the popular uprising there. An uprising, it's important to note, that the government in Moscow believes was stoked and fomented by the United States and by the Central Intelligence Agency, which there's no evidence of that. Uh, but that, that, that tie between Manafort to Yanukovych and a Kremlin-friendly government uh, is sort of, you know, amplified by other connections that that Trump himself has had with business dealings in Russia, that foreign policy advisors around him have had uh, connections in Russia as well. Uh, and I think the Manafort example is probably the clearest, the one we know the most about. But it's it, it, it raises all these other questions about not only Trump's affinity for Putin as a leader, but about actual interests that he and his associates have there. And an email from Annie Regarding Rex Tillerson, a discussion is focused on his accomplishments, which are in a narrow silo, advancing interests and profits of a global mega corporation. This discussion conflates for-profit corporate interests with the interests of the American people. These interests are not the same, Yogi. I think that's exactly right. I mean, for people who have not yet read, and this will maybe push up sales slightly, Steve Call's book from 2012 about Exxon was riveting then. I've been rereading it now, and it's extraordinary, partly because there are example after example after example, and this is kind of the premise of the book, that ExxonMobil, because it is so big, has a foreign policy all of its own, and that foreign policy sometimes coincides with U.S. foreign policy, and sometimes it doesn't. One of the examples was when the Kurds in northern Iraq were trying to strike oil deals, ExxonMobil struck a deal with the Kurds that did not go through Baghdad. And when the State Department said, this is entirely in violation of American foreign policy, Rex Tillerson's response was, my responsibility is to the people who own shares of Exxon stock. And when you've spent decades working for a company, when even if its positions are at odds with stated U.S. government policy, how do you pivot from that? How do you pivot to serving the interest of the United States. Well, he has a new boss now. His boss is the president of the United States, and he the, he's accountable to the American people, not to the shareholders of ExxonMobil. And that's why um, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, James Baker, former Secretary of State, Steve Hadley, national security, former national security advisor, all of whom who have done business with Exxon, let's be clear, as consult they consulted their firm consulted with ExxonMobil, but. They did recommend Rex Tillerson to the president. They all fi- felt that someone from the foreign policy establishment was not going to be appropriate for this particular president. You needed someone who had a different profile. And they argued that Rex Tillerson, because of his international dealings, had a you know geostrategic view of the world. They say that you know geopolitics, oil is geopolitics with a capital G. He understands this. He understands how to forge relationships and make deals. And they thought that these skills were transferable. Whether he can you know pivot, as Yoki said, from working for Exxon to working to the United States, this is going to be his job now. All right, let's take a call from Barry in Springs, Michigan. James, you're on the air. Hi, Diane. 
yesterday on the Sean Hannity show, uh, Mr. Hannity interviewed Julian Assange for like a half an hour. And Mr. Assange stated that the emails that WikiLeaks released did not come from a state actor. And I was wondering what your panel would think of that. Yeah, okay. First of all, I don't, I don't believe that for an instant. And secondly, it may be literally true that Russia may have first passed it to a different group, which then passed it to him. So he might be literally telling the truth by the letter. But he allowed WikiLeaks to become a part of the American election. He has been openly bragging that he has influenced the election. He was open with his contempt for Hillary Clinton. WikiLeaks, which once was seen as a somewhat transparent, somewhat heroic whistleblower organization, a movie was made about it with Benedict Cumberbatch as Assange, now helped Russia interfere with U.S. elections. And he has a show on Russia Today. I mean, he works for the Russian government in, in some aspects because Russia Today is an arm of the Russian uh, propaganda. So he's, his ties to Russia are very clear. His, um, you know, hatred for Hillary Clinton is all very clear. So, you know, he could say that it's possible and, you know, possibly likely that, as Yoki said, that he passed it on. But um, he doesn't have a lot of credibility on that. And uh, Alex in Raleigh, North Carolina, says a former British ambassador to Uzbekistan says he was personally handed the hack material from the DNC by a whistleblower within the DNC and that it did not come from Russia at all and that we should read the Washington Times. Right. This is a theory that's being put out that the, the actual source of the information was a DNC staff on the inside. There is zero evidence of that. And you're listening to the Diane Rehm Show. And switching to Asia, let's talk about Donald Trump's One China plan. So he's looked at what has, again, as was the case with Israel, been American foreign policy for decades, which says that Taiwan, although it has its own military, it has its own government, is as part of China. And at some point, those two, those two entities will have to make a deal that brings it back into some more formal arrangement with China and basically said, that doesn't make any sense. I'm going to take a phone call from the president of Taiwan. I'll refer to her as the president of Taiwan. I will openly say this policy may need to be thrown out the window. China reacted to the first phone call with relative restraint to the next set of tweets with much less restraint. And now you're seeing action tangibly on the ground. The Spratly Islands, which are some of the most disputed of the artificial islands that China has been building, previously did not have weaponry. They now do. And whether you're going to say that that is a direct response to, to Trump, whether that's something they might have done anyway, he is again taking what had been a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy and saying, hey, if we throw it away, let's see what happens. It is worth pointing out, in fairness to him, there was a bit of hypocrisy that and internal incoherence to the policy. He points out accurately the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan, but it sells billions of dollars of weapons every year to Taiwan. And that is a fair, accurate point. That said, to have an American president just say, let's throw this out the window and see what sticks, is mildly terrifying when you're talking about a superpower like China. Yeah. I was going to say, it's as if he's approaching it. I questioned for the first part whether or not Donald Trump <clears throat> really has thought deeply on the one China policy. I, I'm skeptical of that. Uh, uh, and he's treating it almost as a negotiating point in a contract. China regards the one China policy as the bedrock of its sovereignty. So to say to them, well, I don't know what we have to acknowledge that, is not like saying, well, I'm not sure I like this provision of a contract. You're questioning their 
their sovereignty, their, their, how they view themselves existentially as a nation. Um, if he hasn't realized that by now, he certainly must, given the reaction. But, you know, Yoki's right. I mean, we're entering now a very dangerous period. You can't expect to say these things to China, regardless of whether you like the policy or not, and not expect them to react forcefully. I want to go back to our caller and our emailer uh, citing Sean Hannity and the Washington Times on issues regarding the DNC hack material. If Sean Hannity puts that out on the air and you all say there is absolutely no evidence to support that, is that an example in your mind of fake news? I think it's slightly different in the sense that fake he's not making up out of whole cloth the idea that Hillary Clinton is raping and murdering children at a pizza shop in Washington. So it, it's... I think it is fake and it is false, but of a sort of different level of import. But it's worth noting that the scariest part about Sean Hannity saying that, to my mind, isn't that he says it on air. It's that the people who help him say it, the analysts that have helped him say that for years, are now literally working for Donald Trump. So you've had some of the most far-right commentators on Fox News who are now members of Trump's national security staff. And that, to me, is really, really scary because then it's no longer words on air that maybe fake news may not be fake news. These are words being spoken directly into the ear of a president who does not know foreign policy and does not know the military or the intelligence world. And when Donald Trump is briefed by the intelligence community and they say we have – and this is what – you know, when, when Sean Hannity says this, he's, it's flying in the face of specific agencies and um, you know, private firms that, Sean, that Shane talked about in terms of that they found Russian – you know, kind of malware and, and Russian fingerprints on this. So when Donald Trump is listening to an intelligence briefing and he says, I don't trust this intelligence, I don't believe this intelligence, where do you go from there? I mean, take this specific Russian issue aside, because as we've been talking about, it, it is conflated with his own legitimacy and his election and the hacking. But if they're going to brief him on Syria, if they're going to brief him on Iran, if they're going to brief him on other areas of Russia, and he doesn't trust what the analysts tell him, I think this is the scariest thing. And this is setting up you know, um, risks for Donald Trump in terms of the intelligence community that's going to be briefing him to make these he monumental could decisions. He pick and choose what it is he believes in. He can pick and choose, but if he's, it, where, what is he going to base his intelligence on? You know, you heard him through the campaign say, I'm smarter than the generals. I don't trust the intelligence. If he's going to go on his gut and not the kind of intelligence that's laid before him and the advice of career analysts at the State Department, at the Defense Department, at the um, CIA, at the DNI. Um, you know, this is a very different way of operating, and, and it raises a lot his of questions. Gut got him elected. That, and that's, how I think, how, how he'll respond. He'll say, I'm smart. I got here. I, I defied all expectations. Uh, uh, and yeah, I suppose he has, he has a point that he certainly defied expectations. But this rupture between the president-elect and the intelligence community, we've never seen anything like this. The president-elect openly questioning not just the capability and the competence, but the integrity of the CIA saying you're doing this for political motives, coming out and saying these hackers were trying to help me get elected. We've just never seen that before. And the relationship that a president has with his intelligence community is so important and so fragile. Uh, this is this portends for dangerous times, I think. Shane Harris, Elise Labatt, Yoki Driesen. Before we go, I want to thank you all for coming here week after week after week 
and being part of this Friday News Roundup. Thank you all It's so been a pleasure. Much. Diane, Real thank honor, you so Diane. much. Thank you. Speaking of the heart, beyond, I, I think I could speak for all of us on this one. Being part of the last one is, is a genuine honor for all three of us, so thank you. It really is. Thank you for having us here thank for this you. last time. And thanks all for listening. I'm Diane Rehm. The Diane Rehm Show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Boti, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, and Allison Brody. The engineer is Alex Drewenskis. Cliff Gallagher answers the phones. Visit drshow.org for audio archives, transcripts, and podcasts. Our email address is drshow at wamu.org. And we're on Facebook and Twitter. This program comes to you from American University in Washington. This is NPR.